God has set a table for two. One chair for himself, the king, and the second one, believe it or not, is for you. But of course, the enemy wants a seat at the table too. Anxiety wants a seat, envy wants a seat, worry and frustration want a seat. But don't give the enemy a seat at your table. Look up, go up, you're invited up the mountain of God. Move towards infinite power, splendor, love and beauty, healing and restoration. When we gaze upon the Almighty, we are changed by the captivation. Empowered to take every thought captive in the battle of the mind. Shame is silenced by his glory and our future redefined. So draw near to Jesus. The shepherd is good. Our God is faithful. Take the place prepared for you and don't give the enemy a seat at your table. I don't know about anybody else, but that table just made me hungry. <laughs> kind of reminded me of Thanksgiving dinner on that table, praise God. Anybody like Thanksgiving besides me? One of my favorite meals of the year, praise God. Well, welcome to Joy. Glad that you are here this morning. How many of you are glad you're in the house of God today? Amen. Praise God. Ready to, ready to hear the word of God and be changed. You know, I, I am so excited for you because uh, you have, I think, very little idea about what, what God is about to do in the next uh, course, this season of your life. I just think God's getting ready to do some really tremendous things, some powerful things. If you just kind of lean into the presence of God, lean into the Word of God, lean into the Spirit of God. Um, I, I've said this often, that a church can be like a lake or it can be like a river, and you get to decide, you get to choose which one that it is. And a, a, a lake has no current to it. You can swim out to a dock, and you can come back with very little resistance other than that which the water provides. But if you get into a river, you can feel the current. And the deeper that you get into that river, you can feel more pressure against your body. And you can resist that current. Or you can get your feet off the ground and begin to let that current carry you. I believe that's what's happening in this church. And it happens all the time in churches. And it's up to us to open up our hearts, get our feet off the ground, so to speak, and get in the current of what God is doing. And uh, I'm just telling you, I think that we're in a great season where God's getting ready to and has done some things for us uh, and is going to display, I think, himself even in a greater way. Uh, the second thing I want to mention to you this morning is, is February 6th. Turn to the person next to you and say February 6th. I'm going to tell you right now that that is one of the most important Sundays that you will be in this church or online. Do not miss that Sunday, all right? What, what, what Sunday? If you've got a vacation, cancel it. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, if you get online, get online and, and, uh, and watch that service as well. One of the most important, I believe, and it's not the most important service of this year since we've only had, you know, three or four of those. It is probably over the last three years one of the most important services that we are going to have. And so please put that on your calendar. Don't miss. It's it's. It's vital to you. So with that, let me get started this morning. I want to share a couple of things with you as it relates to uh, where we have been over the last couple of weeks. If this is one of your first Sundays with us, we started a series. This is our third week now in a series called The Uninvited Guest. And uh, as you heard announced a little while ago, uh, uh, the book, Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table, uh, much of what we are talking about, or I shouldn't say much, but that, that has shaped some of the thoughts of this series. There are some small groups, as you've heard highly encourage you to get involved in those, but we're looking at a very familiar 
passage of scripture, the 23rd Psalm, which most people have heard at least bits and pieces and parts of it. And I've chosen to take the fourth, fifth, and sixth verses. And probably the fourth and fifth verses are really the most important ones, at least for this series that we're doing. Uh, In verse four, we read these words, yea, though I walk. Let me just give you a couple of quick sound bites for where we have been. And I know that sometimes if you feel like, you know, I haven't been here the first two weeks and and I've I've missed out on uh, on this. I feel like I've come to the movie and it's half over. And uh, I, I hope that you don't get that feeling. But I think it is important to connect these thoughts with what we're about to say this morning, even if you've been, even if you have been here, because I have found, believe it or not, that Some people don't retain my messages as well as I think they do. (laughs) I think it's pretty important. And and we're like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, that's right. I do kind of remember that table now that you brought it back out here kind of a thing. And then it connects to, oh, I remember that chair that you almost fell down on last week. So, you know, all of those things that all of a sudden the dots start connecting. But but a couple of sound bites, a couple of things that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. And and, uh, let me just sort of read that verse again. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. You're with me. I need you to remember that. God is with you. And that's one of the most exciting things that I think from this verse, you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and my cup runs over. He goes on and he says, you anoint my head with oil. My, I'm sorry, my, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A couple of things that we've lifted out of that verse is, is number one, this idea that, that God has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemy. And this table is a table for two. It isn't a table for a hundred. It is a table for you and the good shepherd. For you and the good shepherd. You and the good shepherd. This is so important for you to realize this, that God has gone to great lengths to prepare something for you, and you need to take advantage of that which has been prepared for you. And from that first verse that we read, actually verse 4, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Even though, and this is the principle, even though I will. That is one of the greatest principles of faith that you can understand. Even though... Even though, he said, there's the shadow, there's death valley right there, I'm not going to be afraid. Even though, I will. Even though there's a financial crisis, I will not fear because God is my provider. Even though the world is in chaos, I will not fear because Jesus is the prince of peace. Even though things seem to be falling apart around me, I know that my shepherd, my savior, my good shepherd, he is with me regardless of what is going on. Even though, I will. And then last week we talked about Actually, the title of it was, was, May I Join You? May I Join You? And that's important for us to understand because while we are seated with the Savior, with the Good Shepherd, this table that he has prepared for us, notice again that the psalmist said that there are enemies that are surrounding us. Enemies are all around the table. And, and, you know, again, I, I would prefer for God to prepare a table for me in the presence of no enemies. Or that I could watch him smite my enemies, get rid of my enemies. That's a big picture window overlooking my enemies getting slaughtered and zapped and pow. That's what I would prefer. But God says this table is set in the presence of our enemies. And we know from from Scripture that the Bible says that we have an adversary, the devil, that goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You and I have adversaries. We, We have been plopped down into 
a war zone, if you will. There is a spiritual battle that rages around us as children of God. And so when, when, when for me, this idea, may I join you? While this table is a table for two, the enemy would prefer to have a seat at our table. He wants to join us eventually getting our ear so that we're not listening to the shepherd anymore. We're not aware of the shepherd's presence anymore. We're not aware of what is going on around us. And so the enemy wants a seat at your table. You need to know that. And his chair is a thought. The devil doesn't show up in red pajamas and a pitchfork. He is not, he, he is very good. He's a master of disguise. And he will use anything within his power, within his grasp. He will use friends. He will use parents. He will use people in authority. He will use the news. He will use social media. He will use anything that he can to plant seeds in your thinking that will bring you away from the heavenly father. That's why 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, it says this, we demolish arguments. This is what Paul was talking about. This is the battle that we fight. This is the battle that we fight. We demolish arguments and every pretension. The idea of pretension is something that, that gets to the forefront, something that moves from the background to the forefront. Somebody who passes them off as something more than they actually are. A pretentious person, we would call them a braggart. There are thoughts that the enemy wants to plant in our thinking that act like a braggart, presenting itself as more than what it actually is. If you've ever used WebMD, you have a pain in your side, and you Google pain in my side. First, your picture of your spouse comes up. But then after that, uh, no, <laughs> pain in my side. And you start reading, oh, I got that one, I got that one. Oh, it says this, this. And then at the end, it says, please consult your physician. Most of you are ready to consult your undertaker. Why? Because those words planted a picture. They, they, they began to percolate through our thoughts and they became pretentious in presenting themselves as bigger than what they actually are. And the result of that is something that we call worry. We're worried. And the enemy is really, really good at that. Which is why I read to you last week and we, we finished up here, 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter was writing to the church, and he said, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. We, I hope you understand kind of the word picture that Peter was playing when he said, gird up. Those people in those days, they wore robes. They wore long, flowing things. And he was basically saying, gather up. Gather up. Gather up so that you can move freely and unencumbered. But when he adds this idea, the loins of your mind, he is saying, take care of the loose ends, the things that trip you up in your thought life. Deal with those things. Make sure that there's nothing dangling and hanging that, that is causing you to trip and to fall or drawing you away from the table, drawing you away from the good shepherd. And, and, and that idea, the loins of the mind, the loins are the part of our anatomy, the physical body, whereby reproduction occurs. That's where reproduction happens, in the loins of our mind. And so there is something, and this is where I want to go to this morning, there is something that happens, and I, 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 I want to caution you, I'm not talking about mind science or anything like that. I'm not talking about mind over matter. I, I believe it is the word of God over our circumstances. It is the word of God over this life. It is the spirit of God over the temptations of this life. But our minds are designed by God to arrive at a conclusion. 
Our minds are designed to take us somewhere. There is an envisioning process in our thinking that God has given to us. And so I've said this often to this congregation. I'm going to say it to you again. Words paint pictures. Words paint pictures. Say the, look at the person next to you say, words paint pictures. Would you go ahead and put up that first picture? Well, let's try the second one because we don't want that to happen again. All right. <laughs> what is that? Who, who, who knows what that picture is of? What if I told you that it is a big city? Chicago. What if I told you it's a very, very famous place in a big city? What if I told you that a lot of people gather there all the, you know, often and, and, and once a year for sure they're always there? What? We welcome in the new year here. Times Square, exactly. And so the more words you get, the clearer that image will become. I've got another picture for you. Go ahead and put that one up. That's a food. How many of you are hungry this morning? <laughs> How many want to eat? What is that a picture of? A turkey. A bagel? <laughs> a turkey. No, it's not a turkey either. Man, this is, this, is, this is American right here. Bacon. Oh, that's a good one, bacon, but it's not bacon. Oh. Who said apple pie? Apple pie is the answer. That's really good. We never even got to all of the words. Really good. Really good. American. As, as, how many remember this? Baseball, hot dogs, and Chevrolet. Yeah, exactly. You kids are like, I don't even like apple pie. Is that what they get at McDonald's? The you know, <laughs> drive through for a buck. Anyway, words paint pictures. The more words that you have, the more descriptors that you have, the clearer the image becomes in your thinking. The clearer the image becomes in your mind. Words are so important. I cannot express to you how important the words of your mouth are or the words that are penetrating your ears or more importantly, the words that you might say to your children, the words that you might speak over your spouse. Those words are important. Proverbs 18, 21 in the message version, it says this. Words kill and words give life. Words kill, words give life. They are either poison or they are fruit. And here's the clincher, you choose. You choose whether your words are going to be full of life or whether they're going to be full of poison, whether they're going to bring health and healing or whether they're going to bring destruction. Somebody said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie. Because sticks and stones hurt. <laughs> but so do words. Words leave a lasting impact that you don't see the imprint of many times for, until years down the road. It's why you should speak life over your kids. Don't call them knuckleheads and stupid and all those other things, you know, just a, uh, you know, all of the things that you might say to them. Don't talk to your spouse in those words. Don't let your kids talk to your spouse in the, in, with some of those words because words are going to produce life or words are going to produce death. And the reason and the way that that happens is because of what happens in our thinking. The more often that you tell your kid that they're a failure, that they're uh, not very good, whatever it might be, the more often you tell that, that those words are going to paint a picture and eventually they will live up to the vision of the life that you have painted for them. 
And it's why the enemy wants you to meditate and to think about thoughts. Like I said with MM, WebMD, where you Google a symptom and then that's all you think about. The enemy is using that. And there are times that people say something and those words stick. Those words make an impact. And then we begin to think about those words. We begin to meditate on those words and, and let them consume our thinking. And eventually that, those words have created an image that we now live by and that's our label. So the enemy wants a seat at your table. He wants to draw you away from the good shepherd. He wants to draw you away from the good things that God has put on this table. I want to read this scripture again in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, for all God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. That should be good news to you and me. We're not waiting for anything. Let me say that again. We're not waiting for it. All of the promises of God, they were fulfilled in Christ. They, they gained their access into our life through something that Jesus did for us. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. His promises of God, his yes to us and our yes back to him coming together creates something powerful, ought, ought to create something powerful in our life. And so I need you to envision on this table all kinds of good things. Whatever your favorite foods might be in a spiritual sense, I mean, I, 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 go, right to, I go right to Thanksgiving dinner again, man. I love, I love stuffing. We never have enough stuffing and gravy. And turkey and potatoes, too, for that matter. I don't really need yams. I don't need all that other stuff. Pumpkin pie is kind of important. But I don't need all that. Just give me turkey, gravy, stuffing, and a little bit of mashed potatoes. Can I get a witness? My mouth started crying just a little bit right now. Because those carbs have not come near my mouth for a long time. <laughs> Praise God. And so uh, imagine, though, that all of the things that God has on this table that he has prepared, and he knows how to prepare a good table, and I'm not talking about natural food. What I'm talking about is the promises of God. On that table, there is healing. On that table, there is provision. On that table, there is peace. On that table, there is joy. On that table is all of the fruit of the Spirit. On that table is our helper. On that table is our guide. On that table is wisdom. On that table is everything that we have need of. It is right there. It is yes to us and amen. It's all there. And ours. Belongs to us. And we have been invited to sit at the table. We've been invited to, to, to fellowship with Jesus. And this is what I was kind of saying last week as we finished up. The enemy wants a seat at our table. And how does he get the chair here? With a thought. He comes to us with a thought, and we start to give ear to that thought. We start to lean into that thought, and eventually the enemy comes to, the enemy eventually has pushed the good shepherd out of the way. And now, front and center, he has our attention. So, on this table, there's food. It's amazing to me, and partly because I like to eat, I guess, and partly because it, it just offers a great illustration. The Bible is full of food. It's full of analogies about food and I think it's because we eat and from what we eat we gain strength and all those things are an important and part of, an important and vital part of our life eating is and you know the scripture says thy words were found and I ate them 
I got them on the inside of me. Thy words were found and I ate them. And just like when we eat good food, that food is converted into energy that our body uses. The, the, the person who wrote that, thy words were found and I ate them. And they became, they became something to me. They became the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. I found the word, I ate it. And it produced something in me, just like finding bacon and steak and eating it produces something in me. It converts to faith. Taste and see, the Bible says. Taste and see. The Lord's good. If you've been, if somebody's been offering you something and it relates to God and it doesn't taste good, chances are it's not God. If it doesn't make something happen on the inside, it's like, oh man, I just, I just, I just, mm, mm, mm. Taste and see, the Lord's good. All through the Bible, do you realize that the very first temptation revolved around eating? Back in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, we read the words, and it says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat. Yay! <laughs> You're free to eat. Anybody else get excited about that? God says, you can eat, go ahead. You are free to eat of every tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. How many of you know God loves you? And how many of you know that God says things at times for our protection? God is not a limiting God. God is a God of freedom. You need to know that. He said, of every tree that is in the garden, you may freely eat. Go ahead. Partake of everything. And the Bible says that he made some trees that were good for food and some trees that were pretty to eat. Or, I'm sorry, pretty to look at. Tree that were delightful to the eye trees that were tasted really good and that probably I think that Adam had a little bit of time he had to figure out which ones were which you know went to the pine tree grabbed a pine going well that's the that's just a good looking tree that's not an eating tree <laughs> go to the uh, go to the apple tree no that's a good tree right there and it looks pretty good too he said you can touch eat any one of those except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that one don't eat of it if you do eat of it you're gonna die there's a warning that is attached to that. Now, the enemy at the table, if we could use it this way, God had time to fellowship with Adam and Eve. He was, he, they were at the table. They would come together in the cool of the day in the garden. They would fellowship. They would walk. They would talk. And he walked with me and talked with me and told me I am his own. All of that stuff was happening at that time. But then the enemy came in with a thought. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle or crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, now again, I don't know that he appeared to him or to her or if he came in thought form. I sort of think thought form, but I don't know. It could have been a snake. He said to the woman, did God really say? Did God? And this is what the enemy wants to do. He wants to get you to question God. While you're sitting at the table and our good shepherd is there and he's talking about all the good stuff that's on the table. The enemy is sitting right there and they're going all, the enemy's going all around. And he's yelling. He's like a roaring lion. And he's looking for the one that he can devour. And that voice is constantly in our ears. And as I said, he's using everything within his disposal to, to, to get us off of whatever it is that the shepherd is saying and get us off of whatever it is that he has provided for us. And here's Eve and Adam, and they've, they've been fellowshipping with God, but then the enemy came, and the enemy said, notice what the enemy said. 
He's more crafty than the animals uh, uh, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat? What did God say? God said, you can freely eat. The enemy converted that. He changed it. And he said, didn't he say, you can't eat of anything? And, and eventually, that little crack, she's listening. She's listening. And pretty soon, she's nodding in agreement. That's right. He's, he's holding something away from uh, he's, he's keeping something away from me. Why is it that God's keeping that away? Uh, you know, she didn't understand that God had said. She didn't remember that God had said. You can freely eat of any tree that's there except for this particular one that I've put here or that I've restricted you from because it'll kill you. God is a God of freedom. But you need to understand that this world that you live in is a dangerous world. This world does not function the way that God created it to function. This world operates under a curse. He had a different plan, but when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and sin entered in, sin is separation from God. We talked about that last week. But, but this earth doesn't function the way that God designed. And so when we pray, uh, you know, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that tells us that his will is not happening the way that he would prefer to, but... The good news is you and I are here so that that will gets done through us into the world that we live in. And it's because of what we eat at the table. That food, spiritual food into our life gets converted to energy that we call faith. And faith is that thing that fills in the gap between what we know to be true and what we experience as true in our life. And we'll talk about that in the future. You don't have time to go there right now. And so in the Garden of Eden, the first temptation revolved around food. I had one person years ago, and it just stuck with me. He said it was eating that got mankind into the problem in the garden. It was eating in the Garden of Eden that got mankind or humanity into the problem that, is it, that it is experiencing today. But it was also eating when Jesus said, eat my body, drink my blood. When he, when he was talking about fellowship with him, which is kind of a gross way, and your mind's going, wait, 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 what What'd you just say? It's in the Bible, John 6, read it. Anyway, um, it was eating that gets humanity out of the problem that happened in the Garden of Eden. The first temptation, or one of the first temptations that the enemy, the devil, brought to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. The Bible says that Jesus fasted for 40 days and was hungry. I fast between meals and get hungry. I can't imagine how hungry I would get if I was fasting for like one of the most obvious verses in the entire Bible. And so you know the temptations. The enemy comes with temptations. One of the temptations was to turn the stones into bread. Now, I'm not aware of any verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not turn stones into bread. And I like what one person said. I've shared this with you before. But, but they said that, that the temptation to turn stones into bread was a temptation to substitute. The temptation to sto make stones into bread was a temptation to substitute something for something else. And any time we fall into that trap of substitution, you see... The enemy wants a seat at your table, and there's a thought that is associated with that that comes. And that thought tries to get you to doubt God's word. It tries to get you to move you off of God's word. 
uh, I don't know, it was a couple years ago I did a series, can't even tell you what the title of it was, but I made a statement to you that one of the biggest struggles in the Christian life is when what you know to be true conflicts with or comes in contact with what you believe to be true. What you know to be true versus what you believe to be true. It is, I believe, the battle of the Christian life because there are things that you know about you. There are things that you know about the person who looks back at you from the mirror. There are things that you know about you. Some of those things nobody else knows. You know the past. You know the failures, the stumblings, the things that you know those things. They're true about you. And then you hear the word of God. Jesus said, when you hear the truth, the truth will do what? You know what? That's not true. Because if just hearing the truth was enough, then we'd all be free. We got to do something with the truth that we hear. And what we often do is we look at my version of truth or what's true about me along with God's true and we say, no, this is more powerful. This is more true. Why? Because the image that has been created by the thoughts of our mind and the thoughts of our life, that vision is so strong and powerful, we think this can't possibly happen. This can't possibly be true. Hearing the truth is not enough. It is hearing the truth and then opening up your heart and beginning to say, hey, maybe, maybe that can be true about me. That hope creates faith and, and, and as we build on the word of God. So, eating got humanity into the, into the trouble. Jesus, when he was tempted by the, the devil, it was a temptation to substitute. And any time that we allow substitution in our life, when we, there, there's nothing wrong with money. Nothing, not one thing wrong with money unless we substitute money for the thing that we trust in. If we, and, and, and you're getting inundated with it right now. I was at Cashwise right around Christmas time, New Year's, and I was looking for Ritz crackers. Walking down the cracker aisle. Two other ladies standing there at the cracker aisle. We're all looking at empty shelves except for a few boxes of some unknown substance. And I just kind of chuckled. I said, well, we can tell what kind of crackers nobody likes. Because that was the only one that was left. Now, <laughs> now you might, I mean, you know, that's a rich crackers, not, not having rich crackers on the shelf, that's like first world problem. Right? I mean, no rich crackers. So I found a new food that I really, really like, and that's Cheez-Its. So they're kind of almost burnt ones. Oh, baby. Mm. <clears throat> Got two boxes. It's, one and a half left because I've decided to not eat carbs for a while. It's like, man, no, I hear him calling from the cupboard. I'm over here. <laughs> anyway. Because we're hearing about it right now. We're hearing about inflation. We're hearing about shortages. Those thoughts, if, if the availability of my finances, if the availability of what's on the store shelves... If my security and trust is that, I am substituting, I am substituting rich crackers for faith in God. And some of us, we're so addicted to social media and things like that, that we are substituting the likes and the clicks and all those other things that people will give to us that helps our self-esteem. But if we're substituting that for a relationship with God, or if we're substituting a relationship with another human being to fill that longing in our place, in our heart, in our life. The Bible says that when Jesus was tempted he fasted, or he fasted for 40 days, and he was hungry. That tells us that when we are hungry in our life, the enemy is going to show up. When we're hungry for, 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 for acknowledgement, when we're hungry for security, when we're hungry for peace, if we choose to substitute the world's answers 
for something that God has provided that is on the table, it will leave you dissatisfied. So, taking all that into account, I want to launch into a really, really, for, for not a long passage of scripture, but here's the thing. The enemy wants a seat at your table. I think we understand that. The enemy wants a seat at your table, and the chair that he uses is a thought, but there's another idea, and that is that he needs your cooperation. Now, you might think this is odd, that this is weird. I don't want to cooperate with the devil. That's the trick. That's what he's really good at, really good at. I think that he understood that that hunger that was resident in humanity, and he learned in the Garden of Eden that if I can get him to be hungry and if I can get him to eat something, he was trying that on Jesus too. If it worked, for Adam, if it worked on Adam and Eve, I'm going to try it on Jesus too. Now, it didn't work on Jesus, but he tries to get our appetites to work against us. He tries to get our appetites to work against us, our appetite for security, our appetite for peace, our appetite for joy, our appetite for those things. And when there's an emptiness, if we choose to substitute one of those things, we've made a choice that brings us farther away from God, farther away from the table. You know, when Adam and Eve were at the table, they were fellowshipping with God in the Garden of Eden. And then sin entered in. The very first thing they did was they hid themselves. Shame and guilt became a part of the, the experience that we now experience that God didn't really want humanity to ever have to experience. That separation brought shame and it brought guilt. And, and shame and guilt circled the table. Shame and guilt are screaming and yelling. And when shame and guilt are so loud, when shame and guilt are so pronounced, when shame and guilt are, are doing those things, planting seeds in our thinking, it is hard to hear the Heavenly Father. It's hard to hear the Good Shepherd. And his voice gets drowned out. So, the enemy wants a seat at your table. His chair is a thought, but he needs your cooperation. Um, in the book of, of Matthew, chapter 6, this, for me, really is a battle, I think, the battle that we all face. And this really brings it right down to what I'm trying to say to you this morning. You know, the, again, the enemy, the devil goes about like a roaring lion. You cannot stop the devil from shouting. You cannot stop the feelings. You cannot stop the thoughts. You can't stop them from happening. They're going, but you can stop them from seat, being seated at your table. You can stop them from giving, you can stop yourself from giving ear to those things. And so in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, it says, no one can serve two masters. This to me really sets up this battle that happens between God and the devil. No one can serve, no one. Everybody say no one. How many people can serve two masters at the same time? No one can. How many of you believe God's smarter than you are? You are not someone special that you can serve two masters. And I know some of you are already thinking, well, I don't serve two masters. Okay. <laughs> no one can serve two masters. For you will hate the one and love the other. Or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, don't get weird on me. Just let me... He's using the metaphor for money, the idea of money, and, and, and because money controls so much, it consumes so much of our life. We work for it, we earn it, we spend it, we try to save it, we do all, it, it, it is one of the most essential parts of a human being's life. And so, generally speaking, the issue with money isn't the money, the issue with money is the control of money. We are doing a pre-marriage class, and last week we talked about budgeting in our pre-marriage class, and... Um, 
in this area, he, he talks about if you, uh, the, 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 the lender, the borrower is a slave to the lender, that money becomes your master. And you might think, well, money's not my master. I don't know, Shelly and I were in a place, and some of you might be in that same place today, where we were, we were in a place where money was our master. People after church, when we were living in Pennsylvania, after, hey, you want to go out for lunch? You know, you know what the master of money said? Nope, we can't. Money ruled our life in a negative way. Kids need something, we can't do it because we don't have the money. Money kept saying no. It was, it was the master of our life. But the idea of money isn't so much the money, it is the control of it and the security that we get from it. And again, if we substitute the security that we get from money for the security that we should have with God, then we're going to be disappointed in life. You might have a lot of money in life, but it's going to be disappointing. So he goes on and he says, uh, this is, he brings it home to me in a very particular way, verse 25. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Don't worry about Ritz crackers. Don't worry about empty store shelves. Don't worry about the cost of gas. Don't worry about inflation. Don't worry about the political agendas of, of whoever, whatever. Don't worry about, uh, uh, you know, global warming. Don't worry about all those other things. I'm not saying, I'm not saying you can't, I'm not saying that you should be totally unaware. What I'm saying about it is, what I'm saying is do not worry. Don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> That's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink and enough clothes to wear. This is where the enemy shows up in our life. This is where the enemy tries to get in our table. You need to worry about today. You need to worry about this, and you need to worry about that, the things of everyday life. And then Jesus says, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant, they don't harvest or store in barns. Nothing about squirrels there. But anyway, <laughs> they don't plant or harvest or, for, or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. Your good shepherd, your good shepherd. And then he says, aren't you far more valuable than the, to him than they are? And I love this. Can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? Can all the things that you're worried about, can all the things that your mind begins to conjure up that started as a thought, that your mind begins to try to help you arrive at a conclusion that you are going to be destroyed, that you're going to be destitute, that you're not going to have enough? Verse 28, why worry about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing Yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Want to know why? Because we've been at the table with the Heavenly Father and we've lost sight of all the good things that, that are on the table. We've lost our ear. We don't hear him anymore. And we've given place to the worry. We've given place to the devil. We've given place to the thoughts that he tries to plant in our thinking. And it affects our faith. Verse 31. So, in conclusion, Jesus says, don't worry about these things saying, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? And what will we, what will we wear? Now, the enemy wants a seat at your table. His chair is a thought. And he's looking for a reaction. He needs you to cooperate with him. I will say it that way. 
Just like in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where God's yes and our yes come together, similarly, the enemy's yes and our yes have to come together. We have to agree with him. And so when he begins to speak lies, when he begins to paint pictures, when he begins to plant thoughts in our heart or in our mind and our thinking, and our mind begins to imagine all of those different things, when we begin to agree with him, this is, this is a key. How do I know? How do I know? How do I know that, that at this table the enemy is there? How do I know that, that, that I'm cooperating with him? Listen to what, and I really like the old King James when it says this. When he says, don't worry about these things saying. Everybody say, saying. saying. Don't worry about these things. Now, the worry, the temptation to worry is coming. Because that enemy's always around your table. He's trying to get you distracted. He's trying to yell and scream and shout and jump up and down doing everything he can. So don't worry about these things saying. The King James, original King James says, take no thought saying. How do I know that I've taken the enemy's thought when I begin to talk about it? My spiritual father would say this. He said, you can always locate a person's faith by the things they say. You can locate a person's faith by the words of their mouth because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever's in your heart in abundance, whatever you've been filling your life with is eventually going to come out of your mouth. If you've been filling your mind, your, your heart and your mind with, with doubt and, and things that lend itself towards and, and, and move towards what I would call destruction or death, not physical death, not spiritual death, but de uh, death in some way, it's going to come out of your mouth. And life and death's in the power of the tongue, so you need to be careful what you say. And Jesus said a way to locate you is to take no thought saying, take no thought saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Verse 32, these things dominate what? The thoughts. These things, what things? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? They dominate the thoughts of who? They dom dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. Jesus is saying, don't act like people who don't have a shepherd. Don't act like people who don't have a God. Don't act like the unbelievers or the heathen because you have a covenant with God. You've got a good shepherd. And do you not believe that the good shepherd's going to take care of you? Do you not believe that you're more valuable and precious than a bird or a flower? Do you not believe that the shepherd cares for what you care for? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. He already knows. Woo! He already knows. So then he says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. You know what that means? Get in touch with your shepherd. Pour out your heart. He already knows. Pour out your heart. You need to... Cast down imaginations and thoughts. You need to say, in the name of Jesus, shut up. I'm not going to listen to those thoughts. I'm going to replace the thoughts that I'm getting with thoughts. We used to do this with our kids. They'd wake up crying with a bad dream. I think it was Steph or, uh, or Crystal. I can't remember which one one time. I, 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 and I would go in there and I would just say, here, let's think about these things. That's all I can think of. Let's think about these things. And as they would begin to replace the thoughts that scared them with other thoughts, peace came into their life. And I went back to bed. <laughs> Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything else. Keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the good 
shepherd. And so let me finish up with this. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, there were two questions that God asked. God asked two questions. He said, where are you? And who told you that you were naked? Where are you? They left the table. They left the shepherd. They left the only one who could help them. And then he said, who told you that you're naked? Who told you that you're incomplete? Who told you that you're uncovered? Who told you that what I've done for you isn't enough? And it is a classic trap of the enemy. He wants to separate you from God. And when you and I get into trouble because shame and guilt, they're all around the table. Sin and all those sin produces the shame and the guilt. And, and we feel unworthy. We feel not good enough. We feel like we have fallen so far short that we've got to do something to earn and merit and be invited back to the table. So let me ask you that question. Where are you? And who told you? Who told you that you were uncovered, who you, you were not good enough? Who told you that? I guarantee you it wasn't your heavenly father. I guarantee you it was not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will convict you and convict you, conviction will bring you back to God, but condemnation will drive you farther away from God. And if you're listening to a condemning voice, the Bible tells us that the, the, the accuser, that the enemy, he is the accuser of the brethren. When you feel accusations of how unworthy you are, you're not good enough, you don't measure up and you don't merit and, and, and you've got to do all kinds of things, guess what? That's the enemy. So who told you that you were naked? And why are you listening to those thoughts? You see, the enemy wants you to think that while you've done something wrong, he wants you to think you are something wrong. I, I learned this lesson. I just you, most of you will remember this. There's a big difference between being guilty and feeling guilty. There's a difference between actually being guilty and feeling guilty. And to me, one of the most beautiful things of the Gospels is that I can exchange my worth, what I think, and what I'm running from, the things I've been trying to substitute with. I can leave all of that. And I can come to a loving heavenly father. I can come to a good shepherd. And I can pour out my heart. I can pour out my life. I can pour out my pain. I can pour all of that out over the table. And I know that my father, I know that my good shepherd, and he's good because basically that's who he is. He's just good. And I can be assured that he's going to lean into me. He's going to speak words that bring life. You see, I already know that. <laughs> it's what he's, I already know that. And I already, I already made a way of escape for you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a brand new creation. Brand new. Old things passed away. All things have become new. You are new. That's who you are. That's who you are. 1 John 1, 9 says, if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just. He will forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. It isn't a long, drawn-out process. I just need to say, Heavenly Father, I've messed up. Would you please forgive me? You know what he's going to do? Yep, I will. In fact, I'm going to take that sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west. I think I'm not even going to remember it anymore. And so when you get together with, old, with people and you're talking about all the things you used to do when you were a sinner, God has got going, I don't remember any of that. 
Well, I remember it was time we had a party. And it was woo-hoo. And God's like, leaves me out of the conversation. We're woo-hoo. I feel so bad about this. And God is like, I think I forgave you that. I don't remember that. Amen. Would you bow your heads this morning? Would you stand with me? If you're here this morning and you've never made Jesus your Lord, you've never made Jesus your Savior, you may not even know what that whole new creation thing is, but it is a step of faith. And just like God, he's prepared this table that he just asks us to come and dine, eat with him. The way that we do that is by our words and by faith. So if you're here today and you've never made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, you may feel like I, I need to be forgiven of sin or I'm in a wrong place. Whatever that is, the starting point is a simple prayer. And if you're here today and say, Pastor, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to be born again. I want to be a, a child of God. And you've never done that before. Would you just hold your hand up real high for a moment? I want to pray for you. I want to lead you. Yes, ma'am. Anyone else? Just hold your hand up for a second. I think this is so important that you step. Just a simple action. A simple action. Yeah, God knows your heart, but he wants to see you move. Anyone else this morning? I feel like there's a couple more that, that need to respond to this. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. 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 Hallelujah. Yep, thank you. Thank you. Hallelujah. Would you all pray this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I come to you today in Jesus' name. I need a Savior. I'm not good enough on my own. I've been running, I've been hiding, and I've been substituting. But I don't want to do that anymore. Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. Be my Savior. I confess you as my Lord. I believe today I'm forgiven and I'm your child. Father, I thank you for these that have prayed this prayer for the first time. As simple as it is, I thank you that you are the God who takes simple and makes it supernatural. And so, Father, right now, in Jesus' name, I thank you that you are changing, that you are forgiving. I thank you that you're putting new life and new direction and new destiny into hearts and lives today. And I thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.